everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Bible Breakdown. I appreciate you taking the time to listen today. Um, if you listen often to the Bible Breakdown, you know that I rarely choose to delve into the realm of world news or politics, but as I record this on Thursday, 2-24-22, which will be a day that lives in the memory um, of many. I did just want to share, just based on the events of today, um, just a couple of things that I hope that we can keep in mind as we see things that are happening around us in the world. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is uh, Ephesians 6, 18 through 19. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that Words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Um, this exhortation from Paul that we pray for brothers and sisters in Christ, that we also pray for those who are bringing the good news to people who do not know it. I'm also reminded, of course, of Jesus' words um, in Matthew 5, where he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So an exhortation also to pray for those we would consider our enemies um, that would not maybe line up with our ideals. We would not maybe consider them a neighbor. We are encouraged to pray. And then of course, just especially with where we are in the scripture being in Exodus and talking about the people of Israel and their constant grumbling, complaining, the constant doubting of God, that we not forget their story and choose to learn from it and choose to continue to trust God as sovereign, even when things seem uh, serious and dire around us, when humanity seeks its own ends, that we be reminded that God is in control and nothing escapes him. So uh, especially pertinent, I think, for us as we see lots of things that seem out of our control and are out of our control, but they are not outside of the vantage point of our God. So with that being said, I uh, do just want to move into this week's lesson, which is going to be in Exodus uh, 19 and 20. This is going to be uh, the discussion of the Ten Commandments and um, God coming to meet the people of Israel uh, on Mount Sinai. So we're going to see here um, in chapters 19 and 20, we're going to see God descending upon the Mount Sinai, kind of um, not right in the midst of the people of Israel, as we're going to see, but he is revealing himself um, to an extent to the people of Israel. And also he's going to reveal himself even more specifically to Moses and Aaron. Um, and so we've got a couple of things. This, you know, this, this may go a different way than you're expecting once we get to the 10 commandments. Um, you know, I don't want to just read off 10 commandments for you and wrap your knuckles for any times you're breaking them. Um, but I think it's important that um, as people looking as New Testament believers, um, looking back on the Old Testament, that we have a good idea of what, um, especially as we're moving into the Mosaic Law, what that means for us, um, how we apply that. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, maybe a little different than you're expecting. So starting in chapter 19, I'm going to start in verse 4, read through verse 7. It says, you yourselves, and this is God talking to Moses, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on wings Eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So um, God has this kind of initial um, speaking with Moses, which, of course, we've become pretty familiar with already through Exodus. Um, and he is basically laying out to him. 
what his intention is for his people in the world. So at this point, we see in verse one, they've been about three months out of Egypt. And so um, they are they are nearing the um, promised land here. Um, so God is kind of communicating to Moses what um, he wants of the people of Egypt. Um, and, or I'm sorry, the people of Israel as they leave Egypt. Um, and so we see what God is intending for his people. Two things that we see here specifically. One, that they would be a kingdom of priests and that they'd also be a nation set apart. So as we're going to see as the uh, Mosaic law becomes more fleshed out, there's going to be um, the Levitical priesthood and there's going to be some very like strict uh, rules based on that. Um, and there are going to be a lot of uh, things that are specific to the Levitical priests that are not uh, undertaken by the normal people. But we see here early on before any of the law has been given, and like we talked about last week, um, it's not like a fully fleshed out law of the Sabbath. God basically mentions the Sabbath um, for the first time. That's probably the first inkling of the law we get in Exodus and the Ten Commandments being the first kind of major step in that direction that we see in Scripture. Um, but even before any of these laws are given, God's desire is that his people would be a kingdom of priests. So in its very most simple essence, a priest is a person who is kind of a mediator between God and man. So this idea that um, the nation of Israel would be itself a mediator between God and people, um, you have to think especially the people that they are going to be living around, the people of Canaan, uh, a nation set apart, that they would be this kingdom of priests, a nation set apart, a holy nation, as it says here, literally, um, that they would represent a people that are distinct from the world around them and that that would be pointing them to the, and by them, I mean the uh, nations around Israel that would be pointing them to Yahweh himself. So before we get too much in the weeds of any of the law, we have to know like this is as the law is being given, this is basically the first statement uh, of God's desire for his people. So something that we can't allow to be lost on us. And of course, uh, of course, now we know um, in uh, Peter's, uh, I believe it's yeah, first first Peter, um, he's going to say, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God. Um, and that's now applied to us as New Testament believers. So um, that's still God's desire for his people, that we would be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom under the Lordship of Christ. So um, God commands Moses, um, as they prepare for this moment, he, he commands Moses to have people uh, consecrate themselves which basically means prepare a worshipful heart, um, especially through uh, prayer. Um, he's also going to ask them to wash themselves, so you know, take a bath, which um, these desert dwellers probably needed some bathing. And then he's also going to uh, tell them to avoid sex. So um, it could be easy to think that that leads to, oh, I guess sex is dirty, and that's why he had them do that. Um, and I do not think that is at all God's design for sex. So I actually read a good note in my Exodus commentary here. Uh, it says, does this verse, when coupled with verse 15, imply that getting dirty is evil or that having sex is evil? Not at all. Rather, it asserts that there are special occasions of prayerful preparation and worshipful activity that call for avoidance of the usual non-sinful personal indulgences and demand special focus self-denying attention to God. So rather than looking at it as stop doing sinful things, which doesn't really make sense if God's going to say, hey, have the people keep sinning for a bit or quit sinning for a bit. 
Um, no, I think he wants them to quit sinning anytime they're sinning, not just when he's going to descend on the mountain. Um, but rather, this is like a self-denial, a self-denial of something that is legitimate and God-given, but just shows a, a, a reverence and a, um, a worshipful posture to take that um, indulgence and turn that into a posture of worship. Um, so that's kind of, I think, what we have here. I thought that was a really helpful note. Um, from that commentary on Exodus. Um, so that's kind of how the people are to prepare for this uh, God's descent on the mountain. They are not going to go on the mountain. In fact, they're not even going to touch the mountain or else they will die. So this is a serious business. Only Moses is originally said, it, sometimes I think Moses counts as like Moses and Aaron. Um, he's originally going to say, just Moses, you're coming, but then he's going to tell him to bring Aaron. So uh, Moses and Aaron are going to both be a part of that. But for everybody else, if they touch it, they would die. And then if you touch somebody who touched the mountain and died, then you would die. And really, this is not because God's real, I don't know, superstitious or whatever you might accuse him of that would be untrue. But rather, it shows this seriousness of dealing with a holy God as sinful people. So take that in uh, contrast with a man-made idol. Okay, so you can, maybe it's three feet tall, maybe it's six feet tall, maybe it's like one foot tall, um, made of stone, made of bronze, made of whatever, you know, somebody would choose to make an idol of. You can pick that thing up, you can toss it from hand to hand, you can spin it on your finger, you can kiss it, you can hold it, you can hug it, you can sleep with it, you can do really whatever you want, right? Because it's just a rock or it's just a piece of metal. Um, if it's under your pillow, it doesn't mean anything. It's like keeping your, you know, your staff your walking staff or your tools and on your they're all the same right they're just man-made things made of natural things okay so compare that to what god is saying he's like i'm going to descend on this mountain and i don't know if i mentioned it i didn't mention it already he's going to descend in um fire thunder lightning and then there's also gonna be this like trumpet playing he's going to descend on this mountain in much fanfare and don't even get close to anywhere that the presence of God could be or else you'd die. Now we've got ourselves a pretty big contrast of who is God, who are the idols of the world, right? So this is not intended to be cruel. I don't know, like to me, I'm, I'm so okay with like, yeah, I should follow that rule if it's given and I don't think it's like a sinful rule, then yeah, I should just follow that rule. Um, I guess there are some people who just have to test their boundaries, but I'm like, well, if you don't touch the mountain, you're going to be just fine. Uh, I don't think we actually really get any um, commentary on if anybody touches the mountain. Not not at least that I remember reading. So don't hold me to it. I didn't read all the way uh, past this to see, to remind myself if that happened. But it, it's, it's a, I think, a fair, um, <laughs> a fair boundary. Like, don't touch the mountain. Like, if you really have to touch this mountain and test that boundary, like, where's your, where's your heart really? So uh, anyway, that's the rule they're given. And it's just Moses and Aaron who are going to go up there. God's going to speak with Moses, and then that's eventually going to become Moses and Aaron, as I mentioned. And God actually gives specifically a reason for that here in verse 9. He says to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Okay, so he doesn't, I guess, want them questioning Moses as his messenger. We know the people rumbled and complained to Moses. There seemed to be a decent amount of agreement that, yeah, he seems to be speaking for God, but... Um, God, of course, knows the fickleness of his people. So hopefully he's, uh, hopefully the people can look back in this and be like, oh yeah, remember Moses was the only one allowed up there and he didn't die. And then that guy over there, uh, Bob, he went over and touched the mountain and he died. Yeah, okay, Moses is special. 
Um, so that's kind of the idea uh, here that God gives, he kind of gives a reasoning for why this is happening. So um, they go up and then uh, what happens in chapter 20 uh, is that God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And if there is a famous set of rules in the world, the Ten Commandments is at, I would say, the very top of that list. Um, it has been featured in uh, public buildings in the past. Um, it's something that if you say the Ten Commandments, people may not be able to list them all, but they have an idea of what you're talking about. Okay, probably the most famous codified law um, in the history of the world, I would say. I don't think that's too bold to say that uh, it's probably the most famous in all the world, uh, in all world history. So we are probably all familiar with them, but... I want to drop a little bit of a, again, I kind of forewarned you of this surprise. I kind of just want to drop this on you. The Ten Commandments do not apply to you as a New Covenant believer. The Ten Commandments are not a law that you are held to. Okay? Now I'm going to go on to explain why. I'm not just going to leave you there. Now... This is a good time for us to refresh and to really, this is a great time for us to apply what the covenant system of God's relationship with his people over time, how that kind of plays out. So um, broadly speaking, three of the covenants, I'm not going to say the three covenants because there's more covenants than these three, but the ones that we would say probably most govern um, the way that we interact with God on a covenant level with him as our Yahweh covenant God, um, and then us as his covenant people. We typically are going to go Old Covenant, New Covenant, and then also Abrahamic Covenant. So that's not an order, but that's kind of the order I'm going to talk about them. So that's why I put them in that order. So we've got the Old Covenant, we've got the New Covenant, we've got the Abrahamic Covenant. Now the Old Covenant is what we would refer to as the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, so calling it the Old Covenant is actually not terribly accurate as the Abrahamic covenant is older than the old covenant, but it is contrasted with the new covenant. And I think that's probably why we choose that verbiage. Um, and then we also see it some in um, scripture placed that way, not as maybe officially as we use it. Um, but it, you know, the old things pass away, new things, well, new things come and kind of have this old new dichotomy and several issues in the new Testament. So we call it the old Testament or old covenant. I'm sorry. And uh, the Old Covenant, which again, the Mosaic Covenant is what we're talking about here, was temporary in nature and was conditional, okay? And like I mentioned, the Ten Commandments is kind of the very first portion that we're given of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, how do we know that it was temporary in nature and that it was conditional? Well, number one, uh, as far as it being temporary, um, we see... Um, in many places in the New Testament where we are kind of given a, a little bit of insight about the role of the Old Covenant. No, let's talk actually first about why it's conditional. Okay, so it's temporary, it's conditional. So why is it conditional? Why would God make a covenant with conditions? That seems odd. Well, we see it here in verse 5. We read it at the very beginning. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay. That if there is um, incredibly important. Okay. And 
that's not the only place we see that. So this is not just based on one verse. We also see in Deuteronomy 28, there's these two big section, big sections that say blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Okay. So in the way the old covenant was set up, um, God promised that, Hey, if you obey the law, then there will be blessings for the nation, for you personally. If you disobey, there will be consequences. And that is ultimately played out in the success of the nation uh, when they are under kings who uh, follow God and lead the people to follow God and the difficulties they experience when they are under kings who do not follow God and follow the law. And ultimately that results in the exile. So that curse for disobedience ultimately leads to them losing their place in the promised land. Okay. So there's a condition there. He warns them repeatedly through the prophets that if you continue to disobey my law, then you will suffer the consequences. And then, of course, it comes true because God is true to his word. So the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was had conditions to it. Um, it was not, uh, it was not um, unconditional like some other things we'll talk about soon. I don't want to give it all away. Okay, and then as far as it being temporary in nature... Um, we see several indications in the New Testament that this is the nature of the Old Covenant. Uh, first and most practically, this is outside the New Testament, but you do not currently follow the Old, uh, Old Covenant. So there you go. If you, were, if you really think that the uh, Mosaic Covenant was meant to uh, last forever, then you should probably be doing things a lot differently than you're doing them. But of course you're not, and that's because people have helped you and taught you what is required of us as believers in Jesus. And some of those come up, and one is in Hebrews. Um, he, the author of Hebrews is going to refer to the law as a shadow of what was to come, um, especially thinking about the sacrificial system. The author of Hebrews is going to say the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but instead we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness and died once for all. Um, in Galatians, Paul is going to refer to the law as a guardian, um, and he's also going to say in Romans that the law showed us what sin is, um, but didn't necessarily have a way to permanently remove sin. Um, so the law is good because it reflects who God is and it shows us what sin is, but the law itself could not take away our sin or change who we were on the inside. Okay. And then Jesus, of course, says he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That means the new covenant is the fulfillment, it's the substance, not the shadow, like the person of, uh, like the author of Hebrews said. Um, he is the substance of the old covenant, or the old covenant is the shadow, and it's the shadow of what he would do. So those are just brief and vague references to those things. Um, we could spend a whole lot of time talking about um, why the old covenant doesn't apply and the new covenant does, but the short answer is that Jesus came through and he fulfilled the old covenant law. And in so doing, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, has also made a way for us to actually follow God because we have the Holy Spirit. So the law, is it is the law a bummer? Is the law the worst? Paul's going to address that in Romans 2. Absolutely not. The law is good. If I say the law is not good, I'm saying that God's not good and he absolutely is good. Um, and it shows us who God is, it shows us his character. It shows us what God values in a people that he would have be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
Uh, it also was applied to the nation of Israel for a time. Okay, so there was a time that the old covenant, they didn't know what the new covenant was. The old covenant did apply to the nation of Israel and they were commanded to follow it. And just a little side note, we don't want to get confused with say like, oh, there was a time when legalism was the way you interacted with God. And then there was a time where there's faith in Jesus. If I go and I sacrifice a an animal on the altar, I am exhibiting faith to say, I know I have sin in my life and God has told me that he will forgive me if I go through these procedures. I don't get a stamp on my hand that says, all right, you're good, you're forgiven of sin. I'm still acting in faith to follow that law. Okay, and we see that the people often chose not to have faith in that law and paid the consequences. So let's not get confused either and think, oh, the old... Testament was about following rules, and then now we get to do faith, and it's a whole different thing. Uh, God's covenant people have always existed in a state of when they were acting in righteousness, that they were living by faith. Paul is going to really hammer that home in early in Romans. He's going to say, he's going to quote um, that the righteous shall live by faith. That is a uh, Old Testament uh, Old Testament quotation. And is it in Micah or is it in Malachi? Habakkuk, that's right. Yeah, it's in Habakkuk. So in the minor prophet Habakkuk. I double check that. Didn't want to get it wrong. So anyways, the righteous have always been called to live by faith. So our covenant now is not the old covenant. Our covenant is the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And it is based in the original old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant okay so first let's go ahead and just flesh out let's return back to this 10 commandments now they don't apply to you so the new covenant as inaugurated by jesus he said i will sum up the law in two commandments he says you are to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength and you are to love others as yourself those are the laws that jesus gives us okay and then um, throughout the rest of the New Testament, including Jesus' teachings um, and then the epistles and things like that, we are going to get imperatives in the New Testament that help give us examples of how we do this. Okay, so these are our two overarching laws that we are to love God and we are to love others as ourselves. So not just love them like we love our pet or something like that. Love them as you love yourself, which we all adore ourselves. We think we're the best. Okay, so the New Testament, everything falls under those two those two commands and these new testament i call them imperatives because if you call them laws then it gets confusing with the law and all that so new testament imperatives things we are exhorted to do as believers and those give us examples of how we follow this law to love god with everything we are and to love others as ourselves so now you probably maybe you're starting to get where i'm going here each of the 10 commandments fall under those two commands okay so let's just run through them Real quick, if we are going to, so you've probably heard Ten Commandments. The first ones kind of relate to us and God, and then the uh, five through ten um, kind of relate to us with other people. So if I'm going to love God with all my heart, I'm not going to have any God before him. I'm not going to make for myself an idol. That's not loving God with my whole heart. That's dividing my attention to some idol. I'm not going to take his name in vain. If I love him with everything I am, I'm not going to flippantly use his name. And then I'm going to... The Sabbath is the tricky one, okay? So Sabbath, of all of these Ten Commandments ones, the way that we can we think of the Sabbath in the Old 
covenant, there were some very specific rules. We are not bound to hold a Sabbath like they were in the old covenant. Rather, it's this idea that God has called us to a holy rest. So not a rest that is to um, avoid doing what we're supposed to do, but rather a purposeful rest. So I love God by resting. Okay, so it doesn't look the same as the Sabbath looked like when they were under the Mosaic Covenant, but there's still a a love that I show to God, a devotion I show to God when I choose to intentionally rest from the things around me because it shows the trust that I have in him. So there we go. There's four ways we love God, and one of them is resting. So that's pretty awesome, right? That one's probably one you can't overdo or else at that point, you're, well, you're not loving God that much if you rested for you know two months in a row. Okay, unless you had to. If your doctor told you, then that is good. Now, starting with 5 through 10, uh, honor your father and mother. Paul is going to revisit this in Ephesians 6. He's going to say this is the first commandment with a promise. He gives basically, we call them the household codes, um, basically ways to love others in your household. That is one of the ones that Paul's going to give. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Hey, we're going back to Matthew 5, just like we started off talking about loving our enemies. That's also where Jesus is going to remind or is going to set the bar higher for murder and adultery and say anyone who has been angry with the brother is guilty of murder. Anyone who's looked on another with lust is going to be guilty of adultery. Okay, good. That's how I love others. I do not uh, even seek anger after them. I do not even lust after someone, let alone murdering or committing adultery. Um, as far as not stealing, um, I would ask probably Ananias and Sapphira about that one. Pretty good New Testament example of why we shouldn't do that. Not that's going to happen if we steal, but we clearly see that stealing's wrong. Don't bear false witness. Again, see above. Ananias and Sapphira, stealing and lying. Not good. And then covetousness, we actually see in James 4. Um, I'm going to read that actually for us. James 4, uh, 2 says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So basically that this covetousness leads to sin. So again, not only um, can we look at all of those examples and say, yeah, it's probably not loving to murder, commit adultery, steal, all those kind of things to one another. Not only do we kind of naturally are we able to recognize that, but we also see these specific New Testament imperatives against them. So the Ten Commandments do not apply to you as they are, but all of the things that are in the Ten Commandments do apply to you because they're ways of following the two commandments that Jesus gave, which is to love God with everything we are and to love others as ourselves. So if you were mad at me before, exhale. It's okay. You don't have to be mad at me anymore. If you were never mad at me, then thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. So now just to go back to the Abrahamic covenant, our covenant, the new covenant is based on the work of Jesus and is the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional and which is eternal, okay? So as opposed to the old covenant, which had its its purpose, still has important bearing on us today for how we understand who God is and what his standards are, but does not directly apply to us. And also Abrahamic covenant unconditional was given out of grace this, uh, the old covenant having this condition to it, blessings for obedience curses for disobedience. So remember in the Abrahamic covenant, there's a promise of uh, land. That one, we could have a whole nother podcast about that one. We will not delve into it today. That's not specifically the way the Abrahamic covenant is going to uh, apply to us. The seed, 
there we go. We've got Jesus. Okay. We know now that um, Paul's going to say that that seed referred to many descendants, but also to the one descendant in Jesus. And then especially that he would be that Abraham and his offspring would be a blessing to all the nations. Jesus is that blessing to us. We are all the nations and as are all people who put their faith in Jesus. So Paul in Romans four, he's going to say to, and he's going to be talking to a crowd that's maybe a little bit tempted to think they are going to be justified by following the old covenant, which again, we talked about that is not the way it goes. He's going to remind them, Abraham was justified by faith. And he's going to say, not only that, but it was before even the sign of circumcision. And it was definitely before the Mosaic covenant. Therefore, salvation is not going to come through following the law and in a legalistic sort of way. So that's the point he's making. Um, you are not going to make, you are not going to achieve salvation by following this list of rules because remember the father of our nation, the one who we all look to, he was justified. I mean, he was made righteous in the eyes of God before that covenant was given and before even the sign of circumcision. So instead of us being bound by the old covenant, we are in the vein of the Abrahamic. And how do we know that this one is unconditional and permanent? Okay, so we know we've talked about the Old Covenant, like we showed how it was temporary, how it had conditions. Well, one, we don't get any explicit conditions for the Abrahamic Covenant. Abraham is not given any specific conditions. But also the biggest thing is this, God, after Abraham is willing to sacrifice Isaac, though God stopped him from doing that, God swears by himself that he will do all that he promised to Abraham. Okay, so God has sworn, having no other uh, being to swear on, God swore on himself that he would do all that he promised for Abraham. So, you have two choices. You can, I guess, believe that God is um, not permanent, or you can believe that he is permanent. And if you do, you have to believe that his covenant is permanent because he's the uh, he's the collateral for the covenant, right? That's kind of how God set it up. Uh, there's no sh more sure guarantee than God himself. So this is the unconditional and permanent covenant. And the new covenant is inaugurated by Jesus in the same vein as the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus being that seed that is promised to Abraham, um, in addition to the many descendants that Abraham has. I think it's been a while, but that word seed in uh, Hebrew can be either like a single or a collective singular, meaning, you know, like a lot. And so it's a fun word play because it ultimately is realized in one person, Jesus, but it also comes with the many literal descendants that Abraham has. So kind of fun there. Um, but that is why the old covenant was is different and is not rooted in that Abrahamic covenant in the same way, in that same permanence, but rather we see the old covenant fulfilled. So again, not done away with. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. The law has value for us. Um, but at the same time, we have been inaugurated into a new covenant through his blood. So uh, as we seek to uh, apply this, um, there's a couple of things come up. One is just a reminder that we serve a holy God and meaning that he is set apart. He is different. He is not like us. We are not like him. Uh, we see his character in the old covenant 
including the Ten Commandments. And we need to be reminded that this is who God is. This is his character. His character is not changing. His What sets him apart is not changing. So we recognize as we look through the Ten Commandments, we look through even all of the Mosaic Law, we see who God is through these things. And we should not take that for granted. And um, we should be called to have awe for a God who is so holy that he um, has such, basically... These, the strictness of these rules basically show how serious he is. And sometimes we can get a little bit too like, oh, Jesus is my best bud. We're bros. We hang out. Um, Jesus is indeed very personal. And um, he does call his disciples friends. And all of that is true. But at the same time, he is God. And he is to be shown with great deference and respect. And uh, so we have to keep that in mind, too. Um, and then second, um, just this also recognition that even with all that being true, God being so holy, we have been met in our inability to follow God's law with grace through faith in Jesus. So again, Paul's going to talk about how the law showed us what sin is, but we did not have any way of being able to follow it all because we are sinful. God, knowing that not only did he create a system in the old covenant for uh, our sins to be taken care of, he provided the ultimate solution through Jesus. And now, just like Abraham's Faith is what was counted to him as righteousness, counted to him as a right standing before God. So we, through our faith in Jesus, the realization, the full realization of even Abraham's faith in Jesus, we too are able to stand in justification in righteousness before God, not because of anything we have done, but a recognition of what Jesus has done on our behalf. (music) 